Tonight's podcast is produced in partnership with the lovely literary people at Abbey's Bookshop in Sydney, which is here in Australia, yes, I believe at 131 York Street. This Aladdin's Cave for readers is full of jewels, yes, and has been family run since 1968. And if you're listening to the Literary Salon, you can go to abbeys.com.au and get a 10% discount off all fiction by entering SALON in caps at the checkout. Thank you, Abbeys. And the owner is at the back over there going, yes, thank you very much. And they, they are a lovely bunch of people. I went in there the other day and I shoplifted and he did not stop me. Very good at the Winona, the five-finger discount. Anyway, so our first guest tonight is um, the wonderful Amy Bloom. She's been touring with me, uh, where well, we've been touring together for the past two or three weeks. In that time, I have really, truly fallen in love with her as a person. I have always loved her writing, and it's going to be hard not to just basically make out with her on stage tonight, but we are going to try and have a conversation. Her latest novel, Lucky Us, um, is set from 1939 to 1949. Um, the two main characters are half-sisters, Iris and Eva. Um, she is the author of two novels, three collections of short stories, and you might have read her in The New Yorker or The New York Times. Very often I read her in The New Yorker, which I read in the bathroom, so Amy is responsible for my piles. Um, but she's a wonderful person. She's here tonight. Please welcome Amy Bloom. <laughs> the scene I'm going to read... That Damien, Damien asked me to read is from a lesbian orgy in old Hollywood. It's my favorite lesbian orgy scene I know. Ever. Aren't you glad you came out tonight? Yeah. <laughs> this is called Dirty Butter. Iris wasn't sure what kind of party it was. Two women in matching, sink, matching pink silk jackets and long black dresses stepped in front of her up the stairs to a big house. The doorman, or the butler, was a very large Negro man in a white satin suit from the 18th century and a white powdered wig tied with a black ribbon. He had two gold teeth and he acted like he was not just pleased but completely delighted to see every woman who walked through the door. And he held the door open for Iris and he winked. And the two women in front of Iris handed their jackets to another man in a white powdered wig and Iris kept her face still. Three girls wearing white satin tap pants and white satin court shoes and no tops with pink ribbons around their necks and pink bows in their towering white wigs walked past Iris, offering pigs in blankets and scallops wrapped in bacon. The girls had little mouche marks near their eyes and rouge on the tips of their nipples. And Iris followed the two women in the long black dresses past big satin poofs on the floor and pale pink satin couches. My goodness, said the woman in front of Iris, these things are going to stain like crazy. <laughs> Two tall men in white breeches held giant horns of fruit, and Iris guessed they were blonde under their white wigs because their chests were smooth and their eyes were blue, and they were barefoot, and a woman in front of Iris took a grape and pinched one of the fruit holder's nipples until he winced a little, and Iris gasped. What a nice party, the woman said. And she reached under her dress and unsnapped her garters, and she looked around and put her black pumps and her stockings and her panties under one of the couches. Four dwarves in white turbans and bright pink vests and matching sultan's pants came through with jeweled hookahs. And they sat down on the big poofs, and Iris was pretty sure she heard Tallulah Bankhead laughing. And a pale woman, beautiful like a silent movie star with black-lined eyes and black spit curls, pulled on Iris's hand. Welcome to paradise, sweetie pie, she said. And Iris sat down. 
A woman came up to them and leaned down to kiss the other woman, and Sylvia introduced Iris, and the woman kissed Iris too, and she trailed a feather along Iris's shoulders, and Iris sat very still until the woman went away. And then another woman came by and took a sip of Iris's pink lady, watching Iris over the rim, and she finished the drink in one swallow, and the two women walked away, and Iris felt a hand tugging on her hem. A woman was sitting on the floor beside the couch, putting her hand under Iris's dress and sliding it up her thigh. She brushed her fingers over the inside of Iris's thighs and over her panties, and Iris sat as still as she could. This was not the kind of party like the ones back home in the finished basement where you could have a little fun and then slap someone and then go back to having fun on your own terms. And Iris heard a woman scream in another room, but she did not sound like she was offended or injured, and the hand was still there flicking in and out of Iris's panties. It was possible that in this big house with all these beautiful women and the ones who were not beautiful were built like goddesses and the ones who were neither one looked clever and powerful that there was someone whose hand Iris would actually welcome. But Iris just said thank you to the woman sitting on the floor, although that seemed ridiculous. And she walked into the next room where the buffet was. Food was lined up from dinner to dessert, which was a pretty girl with whipped cream and strawberries laid in thick waves from her chest to her feet. And there were women in their slips and high heels and in their cocktail dresses with the backs partially unzipped, filling their plates and a quartet playing popular songs. And a brunette in a scarlet kimono and black silk pants was eating steadily from a plate piled high with lobster tails. I love lobster tails, she said. I mean it. I think they are the greatest thing in America. And her voice was throaty and warm, and she sounded like an American girl, but a little softer and sweeter at the edges. Rose Sawyer, she said, and instead of shaking hands, she gave Iris a lobster tail. You stay here, beautiful girl, Rose said, and she came back with more lobster and an unsteady tower of oysters and two champagne flutes tucked into her bodice. Oyster, she said. Iris opened her mouth. This was not the kind of party where you could say, oh, I've never eaten oysters, or oh gosh, they look wet and disgusting, which they did. <laughs> and if oysters were the path to parties like these and beautiful, dazzling, dark Rose Sawyer, Iris thought she could throw back oysters like cold beer on a summer day, and she managed to, and she chased them with champagne. Aren't you a pro, Rose said. Not really, Iris said, I'm from Ohio. There was no reason to lie to Rose. Of course you are. Dance? Iris had never danced with another girl except bumping around with her sister to practice for a party or a show. She always made Eva lead so she could work on her steps, but then she had to put up with being led by her sister, who was fierce and wrong-footed and only came up to Iris's collarbone. Rose Sawyer was about an inch taller than Iris. Who should lead, Rose said. I could, Iris said quietly but you don't want to. And she put a strong arm around Iris's waist. And they did two promenades and a slow twist as if they had been practicing. And Iris pulled, <clears throat> Rose pulled Iris back to the divan and more champagne appeared. Look, Rose said, schmundies on parade. Iris didn't know the word, but she got the idea. There were naked women everywhere, drinking and eating and smoking and dancing, all naked and nearly naked. A chubby girl lay over, lay over the back of one of the couches, her head almost touching the floor, and a woman sat underneath her, kissing her face and neck and cradling her head while another woman pulled the girl's legs over her shoulders and buried her face between them. 
and all Iris could see was the girl's pearly round stomach and the other woman's head, her hair pulled up with combs shaped like tulips. And a woman in a pale chiffon toga walked by and waved to Rose, and her toga came only to her thighs, and it was held together by one big ruby starburst at her shoulder. And her small breasts and her large, bushy, and bright orange triangle were not at all covered by the chiffon, just softened as if by candlelight. Iris saw an unfortunate olive-skinned girl near the oysters with dark hairs around her nipples and a thick cloud of darker hair growing up from the middle of her thighs like moss climbing a tree and spreading up and across her stomach almost to her navel. And Iris thought that girl was going to feel just terrible when no one picked her. And Iris wondered if the girl would just eat a few oysters and head home to cry, which was what Iris would do. And then a tiny blonde with a big white bow in her hair and a pair of white Mary Janes on her little feet skipped over and put her face right between the dark-haired girl's breasts. See, Rose said, a lid for every pot. <laughs> she spilled a little of her champagne on Iris's breasts and licked it off like a cat. And the champagne soaked Iris's bodice down to her lap, right down to her schmundi. Iris thought the top of her head would come off shooting through the room like a cannonball of dense, rocketing pleasure. The room did not spin the way it did at home when there was too much beer at a party. It opened like a flower. The walls fell, falling back to contain the smoke and the scent and the schmundies. And another one appeared an inch from Iris's face, blonde, dyed blue, shaped like a heart. The walls yielded and began to melt from every kind of body heat, and even when Iris was much older, even after years of champagne and cigarettes and silk underthings and a wonderfully varied and pleasing parade of schmundies in her own life, she could remember every single minute of the Hollywood orgy with Rose Sawyer. And when she got home, damp but fully dressed, from her garters to her gloves, Iris lay on her bed a few feet away from Eva's bed, and Eva gave a little sniff about the smokiness and she turned toward Iris, ready to listen. I met a girl, Iris said. I'm in love. Iris thought it was to her sister's everlasting credit that all little Evie ever said was, that's nice. That's, that's, that's actually made me steam up. The lesbians are still wooing at the back. Schmundi was a new word on me and entirely. Schmund I'm saying it right, Schmundi? You're saying it very nicely Schmundi. with that nice Scottish Yiddish accent. Schmundi, yeah. my, my Skittish, Schmiddish accent. Yeah. Um, no, it's, 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 it's a, wonderful, a wonderful word. Yeah, Yiddish but, has about 50 words for penis, but only one affectionate one. But it's nice that it's a nice it's word. It's a nice word. There is actually in Northern California a spa which is all Brazilian waxing and the huge sign overhead that blinks and says Schmundi Central. And, that, <laughs> and that's what they say when, you answer the, when they answer the phone. They answer the phone, they're like Schmundi Central. Schmundi Central, can I help you? That's amazing, I love that. What are the Yiddish words for penis? Oh, you must know those. oh yeah, you know. Are they bigger words? Terrible. Terrible. I can't word. even say them in front of you these people. You can't say in front of these nice people. Um, so, Lucky Us, the, the title, it seemed to me after reading not very much of it and then getting to the end, was almost ironic because there's not a lot of luck in the lives of, of Iris and Eva to start off with. I mean, you know, Eva's dad, who is also Iris's dad, is kind of only there on the weekends and then Iris's mother dies and that's, and that's how they meet. And the father is not exactly ideal, is he? No, but 
For a long time, I had a, a, a different title for the book, and it was from an Emily Dickinson poem, and then I changed it to Lucky Us, and as Tom and I were talking about my adopted cousin Harold and I, and he said, Lucky Us, oh, so hopeful, so ominous. And that's how I feel, you know, I'm an American, and there's a great blues song. <clears throat> if it weren't for bad luck, I wouldn't have no kind of luck at all. And that's actually what I was thinking about with the title. It's not just good luck. No, no, it's not just good luck, it's bad luck. And they both send the stories in, in different directions. The bad luck is as much as the good luck. It's just as important. Every title, uh, every bit of the chapter title has a, a jazz uh, yeah. reference. And so you've got Dirty Butter, You Made Me Love You. And then one which isn't jazz, but which was familiar to me as a Britain, Hitler Has Only Got One Ball. The other is in, in the Albert, Albert Hall. Hall. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Alan Cumming. Very good you get points for that. Um, so, you know, so did you go through and give the, each chapter that, or did you have them and you wanted to kind of... No, I have a lot them? of them in my head. I like to listen to music, but doing the research for this was great, and hearing six different covers of a jazz tune, and hearing everybody from Billie Holiday to Ella Fitzgerald to my... The loathsome Bing Crosby, but you know, not a bad singer, just a loathsome person. And um, it was great. It was great. I was inundated with, with just walls of music. And what you said research then, I was just thinking, so what research did you do for that Hollywood lesbian orgy scene? I worked very hard. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it wasn't a big secret. I mean, it, when you look back at that period, you see all these carefully orchestrated domestic scenes, you see pictures of Rock Hudson in the world's tiniest bathing suit next to a man in the world's second tiniest bathing suit. Here they call these budgie smugglers. This is an expression that I learned recently, yes. Budgie smuggler, I know. Ooh. It's very graphic. Yeah. Just like that. Just like that. Big close-up of the budgie smugglers. And, um, and then there'd be a little tiny picture of his wife as sort of evidence <laughs> in the corner. Um, and for the women, you know, all these great actresses, Garbo and Dietrich and Barbara Stanwyck and Janet Gaynor and Tallulah Bankhead, who was the most out and the most outspoken, famously in about 1937, she said, my father warned me about uh, men and booze. He didn't say a word about cocaine and women. So, so she was part of the inspiration for the scene. I mean, it's, it's quite tragic what happens to Iris. I mean, she's on the verge of stardom. You know, she's got her look. She's got Francisco, more of him in a moment. He's her makeup artist who kind of helps define her. Um, and then she's fall, she falls in love with this woman at the orgy. And she thinks, you know, she's kind of very trusting. She's very open. She believes in love. And the studio system does not believe in love, or at least the kind of love that, that, that she has. And she's blackmailed. Yeah, I mean, Iris is like lots of cynics, you know, who think, who think they know and in fact are just custard inside. You know, she's, she's a romantic and she's disappointed and she's a nice girl from Ohio. She has no idea how the game is played. And then she finds out and her career is over at 19, which also happened all the time. The studios would make a decision, 
this starlet a little higher on the ladder, this starlet a little lower on the ladder, we can get rid of her, let's go with this one. And these are mainly men making these decisions, weren't they, about the lives of women, although sure. Hedda Gabler, uh, uh, no, Hedda Gabler, sorry. I would love I'd love Hedda Gabler to be in there. Central Hedda character Popper. in the orgy, um, no. Is, is, um, is there is this kind of woman uh, who's gathering information like a kind of queen bee. Yeah, she was a yeah, horrible a real person. person obviously. She was a real person, she was a terrible person, and she was read by 42 million people every day in her career uh, as a gossip columnist. But the decisions, you know, were, you know, they were studios and they were owned by the producers and um, they were men. This, this hasn't actually changed dramatically um, in the last 70 years. Um, and the characters in the book tend to be running away from stuff. Um, running away from sort of domestic situations, and then Iris and Eva have to leave Hollywood because of the lesbian shame, and they and they they run off elsewhere, and they take up with this family where they have domestic positions. But they, we discover later on that the father has also run away from stuff in his own life. His name is Edgar, but he had another life, and it's this yeah. you know kind of Jewish street kid uh, in in Chicago. Um, and it does seem like that's a, that's a theme in this book, and it's also a theme in other stuff that you've written. People do seem always to be leaving. You know, it's funny. I don't think of them as leaving. I think of them as um, moving forward. Um, but sometimes they leave people behind. Certainly they leave identities behind. But I also think of them as people who don't want to be stuck where they are and the only choice is to break out and move forward, even though that's painful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and is the book being optioned? Because it seems so ready for telly, and I know that you've worked in telly and produced for telly and written for telly. Is it, is it on its way to a screen? Well, it's just like Hollywood, which yeah. means that the offers come and the offers go, and people say enormously enthusiastic things for about 45 seconds, and then they don't. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's okay. I, I feel like it would be interesting to see some of this stuff on the screen, but I feel like it was, you know, it was born as a novel, which is, which is fine yeah. with me. I'd rather write something for the screen than have something of mine adapted, I think. Okay. And let's talk about, as well, your other life as a, as a psychotherapist. She was really worried then when I said other life. Her face was just like, well, which, really? which of my other really? lives really? are we going to yeah. Your other life as a psycho, uh, in the past, at least, uh, as a psychotherapist. And how, how does that feed into your work? And, and, and how much of that is there in what you do now? Like, do you still practice? I think I don't still practice. I haven't practiced for about 12 years. I, I think I, the only reason you become a psychotherapist is... Well, there are probably a couple of them, but... Um, what are they? Well, we'll stick with the positive ones. <laughs> One of the reasons you become a psychotherapist is because you find people interesting, and I do. I've, people are the most interesting thing to me. You take me to a museum, I kind of walk past the flora, I walk past the fauna, I like to look at the people who are walking around the museum, and I like to look at the portraits on the wall. Um, so, there are not actually that many amazing stories, I'm sorry to tell you for people who are in psychotherapy, that people tell you. It's, you know, Willa Cather says there are five human stories. What's amazing is how often they repeat themselves. So the reason you, you do the work is because you find people interesting. And, um, and I did, and I, was, I, I felt very lucky to have that career. I was very surprised when I found myself writing. I felt that it was 
sort of like being a happily married middle-class woman and suddenly you pull into the gas station and you fall in love with this deeply unattractive, unappealing, inappropriate 17-year-old boy and you just go, yes! <laughs> and that's how I felt about writing. I felt like I had a good thing going before. This is all very uncertain now. I'm thinking about that boy in the gas station. Oh, there, might, there might be changes in my kelp contour. <laughs> I will try and keep that under control. Um, I'm going to turn very carefully to the audience Hi. Um, and ask if anybody has a quick question for Amy before oh, we move to our next guest, Anthony Horowitz. Does anybody have anything they want to ask Amy about schmundies, about therapy, about her writing, about anything else? You can, of course, ask her privately in the interval if it is a schmundy. Kind of a Schmundy-related question, kind of absolutely. Love that word, I can't stop saying it. Okay, well, in that case, please join me in thanking the wonderful Amy well. Bloom. Tony's up. And very quickly, tonight's podcast is produced in partnership with the lovely literary people at Abbey's Bookshop in Sydney in Australia. I believe yeah. 131 York Street. This Aladdin's Cave for Readers is full of jewels and has been family-run since 1968. If you're listening to the Literary Salon, particularly if you're listening to it on British Airways, because it's on there, I'll listen to myself all the way home, uh, can go to abbeys.com.au and get 10% discount off all fiction by entering Salon Caps at the checkout. Thank you, Abbeys. Thank you, all of you, for being here tonight and to your incredible <laughs> authors.